Good evening. The heat breaks in the west but moves inland. The hunt for survivors continues in Surfside, and a lion of the Senate passes. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI Evening News for Tuesday, June 29, 2021. The scorching heat wave that slammed Seattle and Portland, Oregon, moved inland Tuesday, prompting an electrical utility in Spokane, Washington, to warn of more rolling blackouts amid heavy power demand. Although intense weather that gave Seattle and Portland consecutive days of record high temperatures exceeding 100 degrees Fahrenheit was expected to ease in those cities, inland Spokane was likely to surpass yesterday's high temperature, a record tying 105 Fahrenheit. Hot weather is rare in the usually wet and chilly northwest, and few residents have air conditioners as folks try to keep cool as best they could. This is not normal for Seattle, and I feel for a lot of Seattleites and a lot of Western Washington people and a lot of Washingtonians and a lot of the Pacific Northwesterners because, man, they're not used to this. And it, 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 it's rough when you're not used to it. Yeah, I'm kind of scared of what's going to happen later on in the summer when we get to, like, August months. I hate the heat. I it's, really like it. Sometimes I like it. It is so hot. Part of the reason I moved here was not only to be near my daughter, but also um, to come in the summer to have relief from Arizona heat. And I seem to have brought it with me, so <laughs> not, I'm not real thrilled. <laughs> Meanwhile, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, during an infrastructure speech, President Joe Biden took note of the Northwest as he spoke about the need to be prepared for extreme weather. It was 116 degrees in Portland, Oregon. 116 degrees. But don't worry, there is no global warming. It doesn't exist as a figment of our imagination. Uh, and as President Biden earlier today, Democratic mayoral front runner, meanwhile, Eric Adams, blasted New York City officials for opening fewer cooling centers in Queens during the recent heat wave, particularly in the borough's southern neighborhoods, largely populated by black residents. He said in a tweet Tuesday, Queens neighborhoods that are home to disproportionate numbers of high risk New York Cityers have few cooling centers in a heat wave. That's completely unacceptable. He continued, we need to open more cooling centers in communities with vulnerable populations immediately. The southeastern Queens neighborhoods of Hollis, St. Albans, Springfield Gardens, Rolton, Cambria Heights or Queens Village all lack cooling centers. That's according to news reports. These communities among the areas where residents have the highest or second highest risk of heat injury or death. Meanwhile, Adams held a lead today during the initial vote in the Democratic primary for mayor, in large part due to his strong showing in Queens, where he ran up the score in the borough's southern communities that lack cooling centers. But the unofficial lead shrunk to two points over Catherine Garcia on Tuesday, according to preliminary unofficial tallies under ranked choice voting. About 125,000 absentee ballots still need to be counted to determine a winter, a winner. <laughs> I'm thinking there, right? Um, in Washington, D.C., meanwhile, hundreds of youth climate activists surrounded the White House Monday in a nonviolent blockade demanding President Biden take meaningful action on the climate crisis. Secret Service agents made dozens of arrests. Members of the Sunrise Movement are calling on Biden and congressional Democrats to pass an infrastructure bill. That includes major investments in green energy, including a fully funded civilian climate corps. Joining the protest was New York Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says climate change is causing gentrification as the rich push out the poor 
and seize the habitable land. In New York City, how do communities gentrify? First, we over-police the communities that are next on deck to gentrify, right? They put, that's what they mean when they say clean it up, right? right. That, you car, that you incarcerate the homeless. That you incarcerate... That you... In, Okay, you incarcerate the homeless, that you incarcerate the mentally ill instead of getting them what they need to thrive. You let the wealthier people come in and displace communities instead of coexist with communities. Okay? All right. So how does this connect to climate? Because as places become less habitable, who do you think is going to start displacing communities in order to move to more habitable places. That's one way that these two issues intersect, okay? So we're here, we're gonna say, we are not going to position ourselves so that the, the most habitable places and the safest places are only for the wealthy. After all of these years, and after all of this time, right? Every time, we knew about climate change, we already know the story, back in 1989. Before many of us were born, right? They knew. And when they compromised, they said, oh, you know, we'll take care of this. Technology will fix this. We will fix this. We will invest. We will innovate. And that is how they justify. That is how they justify pipeline after pipeline. They, and in doing that, when they made those justifications for the last 30 years, what they didn't know or what they should have known is that when they said that, they were making us a promise. Yeah. They were saying, let us do this, and we promise you we'll fix it. Yeah. They said, we'll promise you we'll, we will leave the world okay for you. They have broken that promise. And that's New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Meanwhile, back in the city, nearly a month after the state of New York officially opened applications for a rent relief program, real estate and tenant advocates agree the program is off to a rocky start due to frustrating technical difficulties on top of complicated processes that can take two or more hours to complete. But the the uh, Stakeholders disagree over whether most tenants are enthusiastic about taking advantage of a program that will pay a year's worth of rent and guarantee no eviction for a year or whether some residents are gaming the system to extend the time they can live in a unit rent-free. According to the Legal Aid Society, uh, the real estate industry seems to need to have a narrative of bad tenants, but the nonprofits working on the program have been overwhelmed with tenants calling and trying to get help with filing out the applications. The program known as the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, ERAP, is funded by money for rent relief appropriated in the December Biden pandemic relief bills. While real estate groups had lobbied Albany to approve the program earlier in the year, the legislature waited to enact ERAP, ERAP, as part of the budget passed in the first weeks of April. Landlord uh, Landlords had also asked that they be allowed to apply on behalf of tenants, but the state opted for a process requiring building owners and tenants to cooperate to get money from the program. After a previous effort last year resulted in very little money reaching tenants, the state turned the program over to the Office of Temporary Disability Assistance. The agency told the city Friday, that's last Friday, the number of applications now tops 100,000. To qualify, tenants owing back rent must make less than 80% of the area median income and show their income was affected by the pandemic. The technical problems surfaced almost immediately after applications opened on June 1st. And we'll be having more on that story in later newscasts. On um, 1,200 miles south of New York, 
at the site of rescue operations in Surfside, Florida. The mayor of Miami Beach, Daniela Levine-Cava, updated reporters. The death toll remains at 11, with more than 150 still missing. Since our last briefing, no new fatalities have been confirmed, but we have been able to notify each of the 11 families who have lost their loved ones. This is very, very important that the notification has been able to occur, and we're grateful to our Miami-Dade Police Department for their, their very sensitive handling of this difficult matter. And all the names have been released to the public through our social media platforms. And today we were also very grateful to learn that our president, Joe Biden, will be visiting Surfside on Thursday. He's going to spend time with the families who are affected and with our first responders. I've been in close touch with our state attorney, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, and I am very supportive of the grand jury investigation that she has announced. I have pledged my full cooperation as she moves forward. As I mentioned yesterday, our building audit also continues, and we're taking swift action to immediately identify and address any outstanding issues with the buildings. I will be meeting with subject area experts from multiple relevant fields, from engineering to legal to construction, to look closely at every possible angle on this issue related to building safety. For the families who've been impacted by this tragedy, we are continuing to do all that we can to support them in any way that they need. And that's Miami Beach Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. And retired Miami Fire Chief Dave Downey says the rescue operation is just getting started. It's an incredibly dangerous uh, site. We've got a lot of rescuers working. We've got a lot of equipment, and including heavy equipment, moving about. And, you know, part of our challenge now is trying to control that rescue operation. We're doing everything we can to try to unearth any voids that could contain a survivor. And uh, we're going to continue on rescue operations until such time as we determine the likelihood of survival is almost nothing. You have to maintain hope. Every rescuer out here has that hope. Well, I just want the family members, everybody watching, to realize that every rescuer here is maintaining hope. They're putting themselves in harm's way, try to recover any victims that they can, and we're going to continue to do that. More information about structural problems at the Champlain Towers South Condominiums. Weeks before a Florida condo building collapsed, the president of its board wrote that structural problems identified in a 2018 inspection had gotten significantly worse and owners needed to pay a hefty price to get them fixed. In 2018, a report by engineering firm Morabito Consultants first identified key issues with weakening concrete. Just over two months later and with bids for the work still pending, uh, Morabato presented its findings in 2018. A just a month after, pardon me, just a month after Morabito presented its findings in 2018, a Surfside building official assured board members that the building was in very good shape. And in more climate weirdness, a heavy thunderstorm hit Moscow on yesterday afternoon, causing disruptions throughout the Russian capital. The rainfall comes during a record heat wave that's been hitting Russia since mid-June. Water flooded some Moscow subway stations, halting trains on some lines. The most rain fell in the central district in the southwest of the city. Some streets were flooded and strong winds collapsed trees and billboards. 
Film footage also shows lightning striking an electricity station in the Moscow region, provoking an explosion. According to authorities, due to the downpour, about 24,000 people from 11 urban districts were left without electricity. And back in Washington, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other House Democrats held a bill enrollment ceremony for Congressional Review Act resolutions. By an act of Congress, we are reversing damage inflicted on the family's health and financial security, the damage caused by the last administration. And we are reasserting the power of the People's House to deliver for the people, reclaiming the authority under the Constitution and upholding the balance of power that is the basis of our democracy and the genius of our Constitution. That's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Last week, the House of Representatives passed three Congressional Review Act resolutions of disapproval to reject Trump rules, sending those resolutions to President Biden's desk. The first rule rejected was a Treasury Department rule enabling high interest lenders, so-called payday lenders, to circumvent interest rate caps by affiliating with banks. The second was a rule from the Equal Opportunity. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission intended to make it easier for accused firms to pursue conciliation to resolve discrimination complaints. Third, the House voted to disapprove the Environmental Protection Agency's loosened federal regulations governing methane emissions from oil and gas production. That rejected rule, adopted late in the Trump administration, dramatically relaxed requirements for oil and gas operators to monitor and control methane emissions, repealing the Trump EPA rule has the effect of reinstating the more stringent Obama administration rule that it had replaced. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Two-time United States Senator and presidential candidate Mike Gravel died last week. The Alaska Democrat with a flair for the theatrical rose from obscurity to renown by reading passages of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record in an effort to end the Vietnam War and ran campaigns for the presidency in 2008 and 2019. In 1965, buoyed by his telegenic looks and what he represented as his support for the Vietnam War in a relatively hawkish state, he narrowly unseated an incumbent octogenarian U.S. senator in 1968. I said what I said about Vietnam, he told NPR decades later, to advance my career. In Washington, he reversed his stance and became known among the chamber's more traditional denizens as a gadfly. He was, by his own admission, too abrasive for backroom persuasion and enjoyed filibustering. His legislative preoccupations, besides ending U.S. involvement in Vietnam, included opposing the Nixon administration's war on drugs and abolishing the draft. But Gravel wanted to be remembered for his more recent work about reinvigorating United States democracy. His daughter is Lynn Mosier. Conversations with my dad, what he found important to to talk about now when he knew what he was dying when he was dying was that his accomplishments yes but what does this mean for the for the future the precedent that was set with the pentagon papers with the supreme court ruling that showed that a, any senator or member of congress could expose quote unquote state secrets in order for the electorate to be fully informed in their voting capacity. We've not seen any senator or congressman, and Dan Ellsberg talks about this all the time. No one has stepped up, and there have been plenty of examples, the Iraq War, the torture, GPS fusion more recently, of opportunities where senators and congresspeople could do what Mike did, and nobody has stepped up. And so it's, it's very much a call to action on that. Also, his last work on how to correct the dysfunction of government that we've got right now, the name of the book is 
failure of representative democracy and a solution, uh, the legislature of the people, which is discussion about direct democracy as a fourth check in our system of checks and balances. And she added her father was moved by interactions with Alaska's indigenous residents. He loved Alaska. When he got there, he had no money in his pocket and no gas in his gas tank. He went to Alaska because it was a place where he could have a bigger impact with no family connections and no money. Alaska seemed like a a place that would accept a new person and allow them to get a bigger start. What he loved most about that chapter in his life is the work with the Alaskan natives because when he got there, the mistreatment of natives, indigenous people throughout the U.S. The rural education system there was woefully used to have to send their children to the lower 48 Indian reservations to get educated, which is just a travesty. He took a delegation when he was Speaker of the House in Alaska. He took a delegation of the politicians who had never really been out to the bush, and neither had my dad much for that matter, but thought it was important to get out and see the people and was able to influence getting bond initiative, bond monies for schools in rural areas of Alaska, and then, of course, working with the Alaskan natives and the oil companies and the environmentalists to get the Alaska pipeline through was a major undertaking. And what it did for the Alaskan natives, for them to be able to have the resources that their land. So instead of having the reservation system, they developed the a corporation system, 12 regional corporations, native Alaskan native corporations, and over 200 Alaskan native village corporations so that they can participate raised in one generation. The statistics are that in 1970, Alaska was one of the worst states as far as equality of income. And then in 2000, it's one of the best states, according to the U.S. Census as far as equality of income for the residents. That's what he loved about Alaska. What does he think about what's happening now to the United States? I mean, did he see it coming? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's what his passion was, and I think that's what kept him going for so long, if he really wanted to get this book out, because he's been talking about direct democracy. That's why he launched the 2008 campaign, and the most recent campaign was to talk about direct democracy, and obviously things like the wasting of trillions of dollars on our nuclear arsenal is just insanity. And the Iraq war, just insanity. What he said when everybody was talking about that we needed to go to war, he was saying, this is the next Vietnam. You, This is foolishness. You know, the mainstream media didn't pick up on it then, and they still don't understand him now, as referenced in the New York Times obituary with just a abomination. What's his secret for connecting to the American people. It makes sense. Right now we have minority rule. Forty senators can stop anything. And it's a bastardization of the filibuster, which when he used the filibuster on the Pentagon Papers and the draft, the filibuster is designed for airing the salient points about the legislation, educating about the legislation. And now it's you see members of Congress, uh, the Senate, reading green eggs and ham. It's abomination. It's easy to purchase a senator, right? You know, we, we, all, <laughs> we all see it. It's a corporate game of money. From his perspective, having been in government, seen it, the inner workings of it, being an educated person and seeing that there are other options, direct democracy as a fourth check in the system of checks and balances. My dad would say, watch how fast those politicians get in line behind the people when the people have the right to vote on issues. We give away all our power on election day, and then we beg and plead and protest 
for a politician that we elected, that we voted for, to do what they said they were going to do on the campaign trail. Obama is a perfect example of this. And they say, I can't do anything. I just can't do anything. How do we provide a mechanism for the topics like gun control and the environment? There's an excellent documentary coming out. We wish that we could release it right now. You can watch the trailer. If you Google American Gadfly, it'll come up. It's a documentary about his run, this last run for office, the teens, how the teens approached him, what the purpose, the why of the campaign. Thank God that was documented by a wonderful person by the name of Sky Whalen, who said, we got to capture this moment. As the end of the trailer says, maybe one Gravel campaign doesn't change the world, but a thousand do. And this Lynn Mosier, she's the daughter of former U.S. Senator and presidential candidate Mike Gravel, who died just last week. He was 91. And finally, the top American military commander in Afghanistan expressed deep concern today that the country could slide into a chaotic civil war and face very hard times unless its fractious civilian leadership unites and the haphazard array of armed groups joining the anti-Taliban fight are controllable and made accountable for their actions in battle. In light of the bombings in Iraq and Syria, what are the prospects of uh, the of the nation of Afghanistan after the U.S. leaves. Peace activist Kathy Kelly has traveled to Afghanistan many times. We welcome her to WBAI. Are you there? Thank you. Is it as bad as uh, the media is making out for Afghanistan if the U.S. pulls out and the Taliban keeps encroaching? Well, I think that if the United States remains, it um, will continue to exacerbate the war. The U.S. has never in Afghanistan been a force for stabilization or peace or security. Uh, they've been the most highly uh, funded and highly uh, weaponized of many warlords, but the U.S. presence has certainly exacerbated uh, the corruption, the presence of uh, very, very dangerous warlords and really mafia-like practices within Afghanistan. So certainly the United States should leave, but reparations, I believe, ought to be paid to people in Afghanistan who suffer desperately because of what we've done. And reparations also means that you stop the policies that create wreckage and havoc. Uh-huh. Do you, uh, is that, you're talking about reparations. How should that reparations uh, be given? I mean, cash, I mean, to the Taliban. It seems difficult for the U.S. to get itself around being on the side of helping a government that's led by the Taliban after everything that's happened. How, how, how could that these differences be bridged? Well, I think thinking outside the box is important. Uh, you know, the United Nations does exist, and the Security Council, I believe, is an abomination. But if an escrow account could be created into which reparations would be placed, and uh, it would, I, I believe it would be very, very difficult to find groups who could responsibly rehabilitate the agricultural infrastructure within Afghanistan. Certainly no money should be given to any of the NATO countries that have contributed toward the wreckage of Afghanistan. But there are other countries who possibly could become much better stewards, and there are aid groups that have stayed above the fray of corruption and could give good advice. I think about the International Commission of the Red Cross of uh, the emergency surgical centers in terms of health care in Afghanistan, uh, the uh, mining, uh, I'm sorry, the, the demining groups that have so bravely tried to clear out the unexploded ordinance all across Iraq. There are 38 agencies of the UN 
uh, working in Afghanistan, and many of them do things that are important, like the uh, people who set up the refugee camps, the High Commission for Refugees, and people who try to do environmental protection. So I don't think we should walk away from Afghanistan. We've caused enormous suffering, and who benefited? People that were generals who wanted promotions or maybe hoped that they'd get roles like Lloyd Austin did in Raytheon and then perhaps could make another jump from there into U.S. government. Who benefited? Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin. These are traitorous companies. They've betrayed the people in the United States by the bloodshed and the horror they've caused. They've acted criminally. I don't want to see anyone go to jail, but I'd like to see people rehabilitated. So, yes, rehabilitation, a, a practical approach to the United States military so that we no longer consider it such a sacred cow. We can't solve the problems we face or the problems Afghanistan faces if we don't dismantle the obscene and horrific United States military budget and the terrible military contractors. All right. Thank you very much. Peace activist Kathy Kelly for joining us live on WBAI, speaking about thank Afghanistan. You. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, June 29, 2021. The news produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo trying to keep cool like the rest of us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>